will be in Revelation chapter 19 this morning. So um, if you'll turn to Revelation 19.1, and, uh, and then if you, will, if you are able, if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's word from Revelation chapter 19, beginning at verse 1. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are His judgments. He has condemned a great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of His servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you His servants who fear Him, both great and small. Then I heard what what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. At this I fell at His feet and worshipped Him. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we enter into this time of once again looking at Revelation, we pray, Lord, that as your Holy Spirit was present in the writing of this word, 
that you, will, you are present even today in our midst at work writing the truths of your word into our heart. Lord, on this Mother's Day, we pray for your presence, your empowering presence to be at work among us, to be at work in our mother's lives, to be at work in our family. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I heard of uh, two pastors who were from nearby churches, nearby to themselves, who uh, were standing by the road holding up a sign that read, The end is near. Turn yourself around now before it's too late. They planned to hold up the sign to each passing car. Leave us alone, you religious nuts, yelled the first driver as he sped by. From around the curve, they heard screeching tires and a big splash. Do you think, said one pastor to the other, we should just put up a sign that says bridge out instead? <laughs> Our passage this morning is about the end. End. And uh, let me just begin by giving you the main point of this chapter right at the beginning. And it comes from the key word, hallelujah, which we find repeated in verses 1, 3, 4, and 6. And the word just simply meant praise Yahweh in a very emphatic form. And so uh, if you like to keep notes, you'll find in the middle of your bulletin there an insert with uh, some fill-in-the-blank notes. And point one on your outline is this. End-time Jewish tradition and literature always emphasized real joy and exultation over the destruction of evil, over the destruction of the evil one, the dragon, the beasts, and the world that's seduced by them, the destruction of the prostitute. Hold on here. Okay, there we go. The destruction of the prostitute Babylon, Rome, the nations that had sold themselves to the dragon and his beasts were stained with the blood of murdered saints at the beginning of this chapter and in the last chapter. And God does and will exact vengeance for them. And God's people celebrate this with joy. See, in our passage, the end has come. And God's power is no longer contested. There is no longer any sin. Babylon the Great is destroyed. God has had his vengeance. Babylon, the city of the world system, is now pictured in our text as the new Sodom. And the smoke of her death rises forever. Now, this is a very important part of the message of this chapter, and it's point two on your outline. In judging the world system, God has already begun to reign. He reigns among those who now join together in triumphant praise. All God's servants, those who fear Him, offer praise. And this passage and throughout the book, all true followers are martyrs or potential martyrs. From poor to wealthy, as we see in verse 5 here, they include both small and great. All of this is surrounded by praise and celebration. Now, it's important to think of judgment not 
in the aspect of the suffering that comes from the judgment, but in the just retribution of God. God is to be praised because He is just, and His judgments are always true and right. See, there's a strong allusion here to Isaiah, who wrote, the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the people's disgrace from all the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The setting here in our passage is a wedding celebration. Now, weddings are joyous events in the ancient world, just as they are today, although uh, they were a whole lot longer back in those days. In fact, wedding guests came to promote the joy of the newlyweds. That was the primary purpose of the wedding guests. The wedding feast is a standard end-time picture in the prophets. And in John's day, to make herself ready for the wedding, a bride would bathe herself and wear special clothes. Here, the special clothing, we're told, is the righteous acts of the saints. Again, an allusion to Isaiah, this time Isaiah 61, verse 10, where he writes, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Let me just uh, say that this isn't some kind of works righteousness, but rather, and this is point three on your outline, salvation is by faith alone through grace alone, which results in a transformed life that displays righteous deeds. See, not that righteous deeds save, but that saving faith results in a transformed life. Jesus himself is clothed here as he's described in a bloody robe. Why? Well, in context, it's because of two reasons. First, uh, it's the task of vengeance will precede the wedding feast. It's also a reference to Jesus being the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the earth. He has paid the bride price. Now, in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus told a parable that is parallel to what uh, this passage says in, Matthew, in uh, Revelation 19. Let me just read that, some of that for you. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants that said, Tell those who have been invited that I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. 
and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. See, in first century Judaism, it was common in weddings to provide each guest with a wedding garment. When the guests accepted the invitation, they'd be given their garment, and they would then wear it to the wedding when the day arrived. So here's the picture. The wedding clothing are received by faith, and result in a transformed life. Do you see the picture? It's the free gift of God. We cannot be in the presence of God without receiving those wedding clothes by genuine faith that results in a transformed life. We're not admitted to His presence on the basis of what we have done, but on His invitation and His gift of salvation by faith which again results in the transformed life. One uh, scholar writing about this chapter said it's the clothes that make the man or woman in Christ. Let me put it this way. How we're dressed when we leave this world will determine our destination. Let me uh, now address the point of John's attempting to worship the messenger of God, the angel here, and its meaning. It's very symbolic. In John's time, among the Jews of Asia Minor and among even some early Christian circles, there were uh, syncretistic practices of worshiping angels. The angel explicitly rejects this worship here because God alone is to be worshipped. And those and so this is not only a rejection of that kind of worship, but it's a rejection of worship of all idolatry, including those offered uh, worship offered to the emperor in the name of loyalty to the state. Only the triune God is to be worshipped, and prophecy that exalts Jesus and calls others to worship him is the only true prophecy, is the point of this text. See, it's God's word in verse 13. Jesus is the faithful and true. And so he is worthy of worship. Jesus judges and makes war, which is the providence of God and his Messiah alone who will strike the wicked with his mouth. And this is again an echo to Isaiah, this time Isaiah verse 11, verse 4. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. This is the image of end-time holy war. This is the response to the worshipers of the dragon who demanded, who can make war against him? Talking about the dragon back in chapter 13, verse 4. God allows the dragon and his beast, Satan, to make war with his people on earth. Ephesians 6.12 is a very important verse for us to remember as we 
deal with this passage in Revelation 19, where Paul writes, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. But when the right time comes, they will make war on the Lamb. They will make war on the Lamb himself and be destroyed. See, Jesus at the end rides on a white horse here. This was how conquerors entered into the city. And this is point four on your outline. Jesus, before the cross, comes into Jerusalem on a donkey. As a king comes in, comes in in peace. Now he enters in on a white horse at the end as a conqueror. See, Jesus' fiery eyes indicate divinity and fury with his many crowns, indicates that he is the ruler of all the kings of the world, king of kings and lord of lords. And Jesus has a hidden name, we're told, just like the saints back in chapter 2, verse 17. In other words, he and they and us are not truly understood by the world. The sharp sword is described, it would bring to mind a popular apocryphal work called the Wisdom of Solomon, in which God's word leaps from heaven like a mighty warrior, bringing God's commandment as a sharp, straight sword to kill the disobedient. And because the sword comes from Jesus' mouth, it has to do with the sword of truth, the word of God, the Bible. See, in the Old Testament, the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords is only used for Yahweh God. In Revelation, it's used twice for Jesus. One of the most important passages that emphasizes that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, true God. And the name was written on Jesus' thigh. Why? Well, because the Greeks often branded horses on their thighs and wrote names on statues in Rome on the thigh. Now, the only fate worse than death for those in John's time was death followed by lack of burial, where the remains of a person were devoured by animals. And that's what we get the picture of here at the end. God then hurls the leaders of Satan's army into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, we're told, the place of eternal judgment. What, a, what an amazing picture. Let me see if I can uh, clarify some of this and what it means today. Some have taken these images and made them to mean the opposite of their intended meaning. Some time back, I had a, a discussion with a woman who was convinced that it was all right for a Christian to advocate for the killing of all our nation's enemies, including their families. In fact, she told me that uh, we should follow the medieval crusade custom toward a city that failed to surrender. The crusaders slaughtered nearly wholesale the Muslim and Jewish civilians they found in Jerusalem, including women and children. Some uh, fringe groups today have used the images of Revelation 19 of the final battle to support agendas that are really at the polar opposite to the building of Christ's kingdom here on earth. For example, I, uh, 
I was ministering in a part of Tennessee a short while back where members of the small Aryan supremacist sect called Christian Identity have been quite active. The group expects to participate in the final Armageddon by slaughtering people of other races and other racial allegiances. In fact, one of their leaders declared, God has ordained that his people be a warring people. Lord of hosts means Lord of a mass of people organized for war. Some in the movement are currently stockpiling weapons, and they're engaged in terrorism. These white supremacists have been infiltrating non-racist militias to take them over and to create a race war in the United States. In fact, one of their ministers cites the Old Testament example of holy war and, and Revelation 19, arguing that God advocates slaughtering all the enemies, including babies. One of their a group taped a plastic bag over a terrified eight-year-old girl's head, secured it, suffocated her, and then deposited her body in a swamp. Another such member shot off a victim's fingers one at a time, had the flesh flayed from his thighs, and then he killed them. Even more horrible atrocities against children have occurred. The group promotes a tract called uh, Vigilantes of Christendom. They have a strong presence online. In fact, in 2001, they had 94 active groups in 34 states. They're described as an explosive concoction of race hate and delusional end-time paranoia. Their members view themselves as instruments of God's final judgment, and they've committed multiple murders. And unfortunately, this isn't the only group like this. In fact, there are many dozens, even hundreds, of these kinds of groups throughout the U.S., Let me uh, be very clear. Those who exploit biblical images of the final battle to support their violent agendas teach the opposite of the point of this text. See, throughout Revelation, believers suffer and proclaim Christ non-violently. They proclaim the gospel of grace non-violently. We are never called to act violently or to take up arms for the cause of Jesus Christ. In Revelation, the earthly armies are all opposed to God's spiritual army. Our war is never against flesh and blood. Let me be even more clear. This Christian identity group and any like them are among those doomed eternally here in this passage. See, God's judgment comes on Satan, who is the great dragon. And God judges the beast out of the sea, which are the antichrists, national leaders, tyrants, kings, even political systems and national ideologies that oppose Jesus and the building of God's kingdom. And God's judgment also comes on the beast from the earth, which uh, are described as false prophets and deceptions and false religions and cults. God's compassion is one reason God delays judgment 
and enacts it very sparingly. But God's judgment is necessary for the repentance of some and for the vindication of others. So if uh, you're still following along, point five on your outline is this. God will ultimately judge all nations and people. So while we as God's people are called to work for justice in our groups and in our societies, the reality is, is that justice on this side of heaven is really rare. God doesn't always settle scores in the short term, but his justice is always satisfied in the end. All of us deserve God's judgment. And it's only by repenting and following the lamb that was slain that we have forgiveness only at the cross of Christ. Now let me come back to the main emphasis on this chapter, which I told you at the beginning, is joy and celebration. See, because God is righteous and just and reigns sovereignly, we are promised an intimacy with our Savior that is a permanent one. We today have an early taste of that intimacy and the joy it brings, and we will in the next three weeks be looking at the joy that we are expecting to receive in the new heaven and the new earth. And so I hope you'll be with us for this part of the series. But uh, we fellowship together. But we also fellowship together with our Savior in our midst today. The transformational power of his grace is alive in us and it produces righteous acts in our lives, which is our bridal clothing. Today we live in what is becoming quickly and in in many places already is Babylon. And so we need to be firm in our hearts that we will not be seduced by her. Why? Because we have found in Jesus our Lord the satisfaction of our souls. In his presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures evermore. See, what we are doing this morning is corporate worship, what we call it. Many, and I hope all of you, will take time daily for private worship. But that's not the end of worship. The daily activities of our lives should be lived out in celebration and joy in worship. That is biblical worship. Daily declaring to all the powers of heaven and earth, and Babylon all around us, that we will not prostitute our minds and our hearts and our bodies to the seduction of the world around us. And so point six is this. Though we may live in Babylon, we will not be captive to Babylonian ways. And we will celebrate with all our might the awesome truth that we are free, free from the lures of worldly powers. See, Jesus calls us to live daily recognizing that we are a part of the bride of Christ and to ask ourselves daily what the Lord is calling us to do that would adorn us properly as his bride. See, right now I am flagrantly enjoying my Lord. Are you? Are you living in such a way that people will recognize that you are enjoying your relationship with the living God the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world? 
Are you enjoying him so much more than others are enjoying the seductions of this world? I hope so. See, we worship and celebrate because we worship a sovereign God. He is absolutely sovereign over everything that occurs in heaven and on earth. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. He is the Lord. He is God. He is Almighty. So we are called to keep on singing His praises during our daily tasks, living with joy and confidence in the midst of Babylon. Let us rejoice and exult and give God glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. See, we live with a foretaste of this joy today. And very soon we will gather together when Christ returns to celebrate His justice and His grace every moment for eternity. Author uh, Leo Biscaglia tells uh, the story about his mother and their misery dinner, as he calls it. It was the night after his father came home and said it looked as if he, they would be going into bankruptcy. I'm sorry, going into bankruptcy because his partner had absconded with all the firm's funds. His mother went out, sold some jewelry to buy food for a sumptuous feast. Other members of the family scolded her for it. But she told them that the time for joy is now, when we need it most, not next week. See, I think Leo's mother was right. Today in Babylon, we need a foretaste of joy. Live in joy. Live in celebration as transformed people doing deeds full of justice, deeds of eternal value. As a uh, third century man was anticipating his death, he penned these last words to a friend which we still have today. It's a bad world, an incredibly bad world, but I have discovered in the midst of it a quiet and holy people who have learned a great secret. They have found a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of our sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They are masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. These people are the Christians, and I am one of them. Let's pray together. Gracious and loving God, we, we live in a world today that is becoming more and more like Babylon. More and more a place that opposes your word and your people, your truth. It is becoming more and more a bad place. And so, Lord, we need your joy. We need your celebration as we look to the end, end when you will come again to judge to judge this world. But we need your joy. 
Please join with me now in our corporate prayer of confession, which you'll find in the inside back page of your bulletin as we uh, pray together. And so I invite you to pray this prayer with me. Jesus, forgive my sins. Forgive the sins that I remember and the sins I have forgotten. Forgive my many failures in the face of temptation and those times when I have been stubborn in the face of correction. Forgive the times I have been proud of my own achievements and those when I have failed to boast in your works. Forgive the harsh judgments I have made of others and the leniency I have shown myself. Forgive the lies I have told to others and the truths I have avoided. Forgive me the pain I have caused others and the indulgence I have shown myself. Jesus, have mercy on me and make me whole. Amen. Let's just take a moment of silent confession together. God of love and forgiveness, 